Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. It's Friday. Today we're focusing on the arts. Later in the hour, we'll talk to two filmmakers whose childhood dream of making an adaptation of a blockbuster film turned into a cult classic years later. But first, we have some local musicians in studio. Juneteenth falls on Sunday this year. It's an annual holiday each June 19th that marks African-American Emancipation Day. Specifically, it was this day back in 1865 when slaves in Texas found out they were free two and a half years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. This weekend, Connecticut-based Alika Hope and the Ray of Hope Project will be performing at Old Sturbridge Village as part of a Freedom Week celebration. The Ray of Hope Project incorporates African-American spirituals with live music to teach audiences about slavery in 19th century America. Their first album came out earlier this year. It's called Hope for a Motherless Child. Alika Hope and some members of the Ray of Hope Project are in studio again. Welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Now, Lawrence V. White is on bass today and Dexter Petaway Sr. on drums. So thank you so much for joining Alika Hope in studio. So I wanted to start with you first, Alika. Tell me about this project. How did you guys form? Well, I've been singing spiritual since I was a very little girl. My father, uh, I'm from Oregon, and my father used to always take me cross-country skiing in the mountains. And on our trips, he'd be singing Swing Low to me. And I just remember that's one of my earliest memories. And so all of those songs have kind of been part of my body and part of me for so long. And I used to sing them at you know funerals, weddings, church services. And I was doing a lot of educational work around music in the New York City area. And uh, a friend of mine was in New York with me doing a music project with a bunch of teachers. And on our way back, we started talking about how could we turn this into more work and, and kind of get this message across through the spirituals and talking about social justice and music. And uh, he's a phenomenal guitarist. His name is Ray Morant. And we're in the car. And the way that my mind works is, how can I make this project marketable? We need a hook. And he just said, Ray of Hope, because I'm a League of Hope and he was Ray Morant. And I kind of took that and I kind of ran with it. Um, and I turned it into the Ray of Hope project so that uh, we kind of share hope. I think the ultimate goal is to share hope through stories of histories, through stories of the past. And we now, this year I've been blessed enough to be able to employ 16 different musicians and artists. So it's kind of grown in the past three years. <laughs> wow. And so you say that education is part of your mission. Mm-hmm. So tell me how um, you reach out to audiences, both young and old. I talk to audiences about the spirituals and the history that we know about the spirituals and that they had coded meetings. So sometimes there are songs that are known as signal songs, which would tell people um, this is coming, this is coming up, uh, like, you know, we're, it's, we're going to escape soon. And then there are also things like map songs, which would guide the slaves uh, escaping in the Underground Railroad time. One of them is like uh, Follow the Drinking Gourd. So that one is, you know, Follow the Drinking Gourd. And a gourd looks like the Big Dipper. So it would tell slaves how to get up north. And, you know, through that, kids and, and adults, even elderly people, would be really involved. And I kind of opened the door to us talking about 
how are we helping people around the world become free today? Mm. How are we helping our neighbors find freedom? And that's kind of where it's gone, and that's kind of how kids have been receptive. I've had kids, I had a middle school group talking about uh, child trafficking and child prostitution in the U.S. based on us singing some spirituals. It was mind-blowing. And music really speaks to people better than if you just read a boring textbook right. about the history of slavery in the United States. Um, so you really see that um, response from your audience when you sing and, and play music in a room. And, uh, you know, Dexter, who has been with the project almost since the beginning, at, how do you feel when you are singing and, and, and playing percussion with the school kids? I feel awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel really well, really good uh, just to see the kids interacting um, with the instruments, with the, uh, the atmosphere that's being created. Tell me about your background, each one of you. So I read, Alika, that you're actually a professional opera singer. I was, Okay. yes. Uh, that came from, you know, when I was two years old, my mother put me in the gospel choir back mm-hmm. in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from, because she needed a break because I was very hyper. <laughs> and I was always the girl in the gospel choir. I grew up in a black church, and my voice was always, you know, Aah! and since being little, I never really fit in. So people kept saying, go into opera. So I went into opera, and it was never really in my soul, even though my voice was singing opera. And the spirituals, for me, they bridged that gap of, of having the spirit um, together with the opera. But I, uh, I went to University of Notre Dame, Fighting Irish, <laughs> and then I went to grad school at Columbia University. And so I kind of gradually moved my way further and further east. And now I'm here. And Dexter, on drums, uh, how did you find your calling uh, to be a musician? I found my calling uh, at the age of one. Um, My mom said every time they walked around the uh, collection plate in church, I grew up in church, and um, I always had to look for the drums. And um, just ever since then, drums have been a major part of my life, and that's what I do for a profession. And Lawrence uh, White is here on the bass. Tell me about uh, your, your journey to music. Someone like, like Dex, um, basically in the church, grew up, um, Connecticut born and raised, uh, grew up in Waterbury, later to move to like the Hartford area, and really in church pretty much all my life. Uh, started playing bass maybe in high school, and been playing bass ever since then. We're talking with the Ray of Hope Project here in studio for Where We Live. Let's hear some of your music. Here's Wade in the Water. Wait in the water, wait in the water, children, wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the water. See that man all dressed in white. God's gonna trouble the water. It looks like the leader of Israelite. God's gonna trouble the water. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the water, Jordan's water, chilly and cold. God's gonna trouble the water, it chills the body but not the soul. God's gonna trouble the water, wait. 
not trouble the water. So powerful. Can you talk about some of the history of that song? Yeah, I, I wanted to start with that for a couple of reasons. In the times of the slavery, you know, the, the slaves would just sing the songs spontaneously. Um, we do have a drum in, in this particular recording today, but historically, in many places, drums were outlawed because when the slaves brought the drums from Africa, some of the slave masters found out that the, they were using drums to send messages and to send signals. And the last thing you want when you have someone on oppression is for them to be able to communicate with each other. And it's funny because that particular song, talking about communication, you know, water, it's, it's, it's double-coded. It's a coded song. So we have the wade in the water, it cleanses, coming from the Old Testament, because slaves were allowed to discuss things from the Bible. But then we have the coded meaning of wading in the water. If you're running on the Underground Railroad and you're running away from a slave master, often they would send dogs after you to capture your scent. But if you go in the water, the water will erase that scent, and so people can't find you. So if I tell you, Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. You might think I'm talking from the Bible, but I'm telling you, get your behind in the water because that smell will be gone and they can't find you. How do students respond to when you hear about the, the meaning behind these songs, the codes that are embedded in them? It's great because I am a big fan also of rap music, I will admit. And so often what I'll do is I'll take current hip-hop and rap songs and kind of unravel the hidden meanings in there. And the kids will draw a connection behind the songs of the past and what they're hearing on the radio and what do these songs really mean that they're hearing. So that's another line to draw. Can I put you on the spot? Sure, okay. So tell me what one of the, one of the, one of the rap songs that you would uh, use as an example. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. So I did a <laughs> workshop in New York uh, a few weeks ago with a group of high schoolers. And there's a, a song that was really popular. It still is. It's by a guy called Jeremiah. Not Jeremiah, but Jeremiah. And the song is called uh, You and I, but it's spelled O-U-I. So I pulled it up on the smart board in front of the kids. I said, you all know this song, right? And it's, it's um, you know, when we blah, blah, blah. Okay, so I like hip-hop, but I don't sing it well. So we'll <laughs> stop there. But uh, so it's we. But in French, I was telling them we, you and I, means yes. And so when they heard it, they heard you and I, and they heard this love song. But then I broke it down, and I said, all right, so what does we mean? We means yes. So is he saying yes to love, you know, even though all they'd heard was you and I? And part of the lyrics say there is no we without you and I. And so in French, we is, you know, like we say W-E. So I said to them, think about that. Look at that word. There's no we without the letter U and the letter I. And they're like, oh, miss. Wow, miss, that's so cool. So that's kind of how I reach them. I was reading on your website that um, you mentioned rap. So not only are you using spirituals to educate, uh, but you're talking about African-American uh, music throughout many generations, mm -hmm. uh, the blues, the jazz, the rap. Um, how, do, how does your audience respond to that when they think about this um, evolution of music uh, through the years? We are very flexible. I am very, very blessed. I thank God every day for the musicians I have. Dexter and Lawrence are two of the ones who are the most flexible. So when we walk into a, a place, we kind of read who's there, and we'll kind of change things up depending on who the audience is. And even in the midst of I might have a program that's planned, even in the midst of that, I might turn to the guys and be like, you know what, they're going to really feel it if we do this song. Uh, we were at a school in Middletown 
remember that grade school we did in Middletown? And both these guys were there. And we ended up only doing like five songs out of the 10 planned because the kids were getting up. Were they like dancing? And yeah, they were dancing. One of the kids came up to the microphone. So we're very flexible in terms of what songs we pick depending on how the audience reacts. Yeah, we were listening to you set up before the show, and you were you were singing. I think uh, we'll hear later, uh, "Sweet Chariot," "Swing Low," "Swing Low." Mm-hmm. And I was literally like doing this with my seat, like moving back and forth because <laughs> I couldn't just sit there still talking to my producer. So it's just the power of music to want us to move, um, mm-hmm. and so you can see your audience responding um, just listening to you. You play and sing. It's great. It it brings me so much joy. And it brings these guys so much joy. I often catch Dexter cracking up. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Um, We're going to take a break in just a moment. Um, One of the songs off of your new album, Hope for a Motherless Child, is Down by the Riverside, Mm -hmm. sung by John Henry Langley. Um, But the refrain is, um, ain't going to study war no more. So you told me that um, you flipped it around a little bit uh, for 2016. Tell me about that. On the album, I used the phrase, study war no more. I feel like, you know, we've been working on this album since last year. There's been so many tragedies happening in America alone, let alone the world. But I feel like, you know, we're, we've become somewhat more of a violent culture. People aren't communicating. People aren't talking to each other. And I was really hoping when I heard John sing that song, I started crying in the studio. And study war no more is, is let's just put down our stuff and just stop studying war. And, you know, today is the one-year anniversary of the Charleston shooting. And... uh Sorry, um, I'm getting emotional, but mm-hmm. I, when that happened, I was I was uh, torn to pieces because they were just people sitting in church, and most of them, all of them, were African American. And I think that this song is a good uh, commemorative to that shooting. That's right. A, a year ago today, uh, nine people were gunned down in the Manual African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, so we're going to take a, a break. Before we do that, let's hear a little bit from. Down by the riverside. I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside. Down by the riverside. Down by the riverside, cold laid down my sword and shield. Down by the riverside, won't study war no more. Down by the Riverside, off the album, Hope for a Motherless Child. Again, we're talking today with Alika Hope and the Ray of Hope Project. They'll be performing at Old Sturbridge Village tomorrow and Sunday as part of the Freedom Week celebration. We'll hear more from them after the break. This is where we live. Oh, no. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. In studio with me are three members of the Ray of Hope Project. The nine-member group of musicians and actors incorporate African-American spirituals with live music to educate young audiences about slavery in the U.S. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me, Alika Hope, founder and vocalist of the Ray of Hope Project. Also, Lawrence V. White on bass and Dexter Petaway Sr. on drums, who also does spoken word on the album, for the motherless child. Uh, before the break, uh, Alika, you mentioned uh, the one-year anniversary of the, of the Charleston shootings, and I think people are probably surprised when they hear that because we're just now um, still reacting, uh, many grieving for the victims in Orlando just earlier um, in the week. Um, I wanted to get your reflections, uh, Dexter and Lawrence, about um, this day. Well, Dexter, go ahead. Yes, sure. Thanks. Uh, this this day is is uh, very important. Um, I believe not for um, I believe for the uh, the people in church and the people outside of church. Uh, hopefully, um, with this day, we can stand uh, united and um, build our faith. You know, just to believe that um, there will be peace one day. Uh, we will lay down our sword and shield. You know, and stop fighting um, each other. And Lawrence, uh, before we heard in, earlier in the show that each one of you, um, when you were in church, obviously it influenced uh, your music, your um, your passion for music. Um, but when we think about the, the Charleston uh, victims a year ago, I mean, they were in church, uh, in the community, praying, um, being together when this census act happened. I remember, I, I can remember distinctly how I felt uh, after that shooting, because I, at the time I was kind of in a position in church um, where I was kind of responsible for security and for grounds, and it, it kind of it had so much gravity just because of um, you know just imagining that happening, you know, doing things that you do on a weekly basis, you know, just sitting in church and someone coming in and pretty much just mowing out you know a whole congregation. So it, it really impacted me, and I, I remember seeing churches, you know, around the city and around the, the state kind of taking up arms and kind of really thinking about things that they've never had to think of before. So that song was a, a really good segue uh, into, you know, kind of commemorating uh, the Charleston Act. Uh, the Ray of Hope Project uses spirituals to teach audiences, many young audiences, about uh, the history of slavery in this country, the abolitionist movement. Um, you mentioned a little bit, Alika, about um, the hidden meaning in some of the spirituals. Can you, can you talk about the techniques used, the call and response uh, technique, um, that, and how um, these songs were taught among the slaves? Well, I can tell you from my personal experience of how it was taught all of the songs that I know, all of the spirituals were taught to me through call and response, through either one a member of my family saying, you know, this little light of mine, and then me going, this little light of mine. And in my church choir, it was always call and response. We didn't use any music. We didn't use any sheet music. And I think that's probably handed down from, you know, generations when it was illegal to know how to read. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because then, I, of course, as you know, I studied opera and I had to do all this music theory and all of this. But again, in my heart was all of the call and response and the feeling, the music. It's, it is a great world, though, to be able to have the, the meld of both. And I'm really glad now that everybody in America gets the opportunity, at least. Um, 
I should not even say that because some kids don't, but the ability to learn how to read music. Because really the best of both worlds is to be able to read music and to know things like call and response or singing, group singing, chanting, things like that. We're going to hear the Ray of Hope Project singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot um, in just a, another minute. But can we talk about the history of this very old spiritual? What, do you, what can you tell us about it? Because we, we know little bits of it. I'm sure many yes. of us do. When I first started singing it, everyone thought it was this really slow, sad song about going to heaven. Swing low. Then I researched a lot of the coded meanings, and it is very much an Underground Railroad song. If you, you, know, you can look online, you can look at a lot of uh, historical books, uh, and some simple phrase like, a band of angels coming after me. Thinking about workers on the Underground Railroad coming after me. When it says, I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? We're really talking about, I looked over the Mississippi or Ohio River, and what did I see? And the Jordan River is a very common theme in spirituals, talking about the Mississippi River. So we're going to hear the Ray of Hope Project sing, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Now if you get there before I do, coming for to carry me home. Tell all of my friends I'm coming there too. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. I'm sometimes up and I'm sometimes down. Coming for to carry me home. But still my soul is a heavenly bound. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Coming for to carry me home. Coming for to carry me home. That's Alika Hope, uh, a founder and vocalist of the Ray of Hope Project, along with Lawrence White on the bass and Dexter Petaway um, on the drums. This weekend, the Ray of Hope Project will be performing at Old Sturbridge Village as part of a Freedom Week celebration. Their first album came out earlier this year. It's called Hope for a Motherless Child. 
Um, when we come back from a break, we're going to hear from two longtime filmmakers who spent seven summers as kids making a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Before we go to break, though, we're going to hear uh, another song of yours, And So It Ends. So I want to thank you so much for your time coming on Where We Live, Alika, Dexter, and Lawrence. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, we listen back to a conversation we had about Asian Americans, the fastest growing population in the U.S. and Connecticut. In election years, candidates pay attention to the women's vote, the black vote, the Latino vote. But what about the Asian vote? We'll hear from Asian Americans living in the state and check in with a journalist about the stereotyping that goes on in our communities and in Hollywood. That's Monday. It's finally the weekend. Looking for good movies to see? Well, Real Artways in Hartford is screening a movie about a movie about a movie. The film Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation has become a cult classic. And this isn't a remake like the new Ghostbusters film. These were kids spending several summers of their lives recreating the blockbuster film shot for shot over the course of seven summers. What was briefly yours is now mine. What's up? fitting end your life's pursuit. You're about to become a permanent addition to the psychological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Those kids are now grown-ups, and they're joining us from NPR studios in Washington, D.C. Eric Zala was one of the filmmakers behind the remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Chris Strompolis was a childhood friend who played Indiana Jones in the adaptation. Eric and Chris, welcome to Where We Live. Hey, thanks. Thank you. So what was it about this film? Take us back to when you were uh, boys and you first saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. When I uh, first saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, I was about 10 years old, and it really was a character that jumped off the screen for me. Uh, it was everything in a hero that I wanted it to to, to see, and uh, it affected me deeply. And as many boys want to do, I just wanted to kind of emulate that and play that hero and create that playground for myself. It was uh, an astounding experience watching it for the first time. 
And as director, I just wanted to see, I mean, when Chris approached me, what would a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders of Lost Ark with teenage actors look like? And so how did you go about the process? I mean, you were obviously boys growing up in Mississippi. How did you know where to begin? Well, that's just it. We we didn't really. We were kind of groped around in the dark uh, for the first time. This was pre-internet, and our research materials were limited to the film section of the bookstore in the mall. But we uh, we figured it out first. A, a, sh- a shot list that we made and realized it was worthless, and then and then intuited that storyboards were in fact how filmmakers did it. And I spent an entire summer drawing uh, 602 storyboards from memory since Raiders wasn't out on video yet. And what did your parents think of this uh, project that you began? I think uh, we were both uh, raised by single moms, a lot of mom power going on, mm-hmm. so that was cool. Um, I think that in the beginning, their reaction was, as any parent would, you know, kind of pat your child on the head in a sweet way and mm-hmm. and uh, send them on their way and say, that's great, sweetheart. But it was clear a few years in that Eric and I weren't going to stop. So that's, uh, you know, and they continued to support us. And how many times did you actually see Raiders of the Lost Ark in theaters before you began this this project? Not as much as you might think. Thankfully, Raiders was re-released in 82, and we uh, saw it as much as our allowance would sustain, which I think was about twice. So you were two boys, but obviously you had to uh, get your friends to join you on this adaptation. Uh, What did they think when you brought the idea to them? I think, you know, a lot of people were excited uh, that it was a, a fine indication of Eric and I, our working chemistry and our working dynamic, is that I would be the one to sort of seduce people <laughs> into the project, and Eric would be the one to keep them there. And so you was I remember watching the documentary the other day, and so your mom was able to get you a, a, a camera uh, to record uh, these scenes, and um, it was an old beta master, is that right? Beta Max, yep. Beta Max. Yep, that was our. We were we were trained on an old three quarter inch uh, broadcast camera just to get some training, white balancing, rack focus, that kind of thing. But uh, our first camera was a, a Sony Beta Max. <laughs> and tell me what it was like to see because that first summer you filmed a bunch of scenes and then you were able to watch it back. What did you think? Uh, you know, it was actually two years in by this point that we, you know, finally got to shoot, and it looked awful. <laughs> it was, you know, it was muddy, underlit, uh, poorly composed. But, uh, and this was, as director, kind of the darkest point. I mean, do you, two years in, do you give up or do you keep going? And we opted to keep going and keep reshooting certain scenes over and over again until uh, through filmmaking on the fly, we picked up things about shot composition, lighting, blocking, etc., and then and only then moved on to the rest. Let's talk about some of the special effects, because I, I, re- I understand there's lots of fire involved. I think we want to play a cut from one of the moms when they found out that you were playing with fire. Suddenly I get a call from Elaine. One of the guys at the uh, studio saw them editing this print with this fire, and uh, she said, uh, we need to talk. And I said, so what happened? Well, you know, that day uh, I asked the guy, I stunt doubled for the character of the Ratty Nepalese, and uh, instead <laughs> of the watered-down ice purple alcohol uh, that we usually use, I, I knew it had to be spectacular. So I asked the guys to douse my back uh, with gasoline for this particular stunt. And so they, they lit me up, and I hit my cue, screamed, and called cut. And they rushed forth with smothering blankets and threw them on and almost immediately took them off 
on, off, on, off, fanning <laughs> the flames higher. And, uh, and the smell of burnt hair fills the small basement room. And finally, Chris, uh, you know, uh, inhabiting Indiana Jones, grabs me, throws me to the floor, and, and they get the fire extinguisher working and blast me with it. But, uh, yeah, we, we're in big trouble for that. It sounds like it made a great scene, though. It did. We got the shot. <laughs> and so from there, um, obviously, your your mom's probably decided that you needed a little adult supervision. So how were you able to keep doing this adaptation without them worrying about you each day? Two words. Yeah. Adult supervisor. We actually found an adult even less responsible than we were. Uh, Peter Kiefer, a uh, great guy who rented a cottage uh, behind my mom's house, agreed to oversee us and, and actually um, helped in letting us know where we needed more fire in, in the shot. Um, and so the pyrotechnics continued uh, unabated, uh, increased, in fact. Uh, yeah, we were very, very lucky that we didn't burn my mom's house down. Here's a clip of Alan Eisenstock, who's in the documentary and wrote a book about your film called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Let's hear it. When you look at the original fire that freaked out the moms and had them shut down production and compare that to the fire that they actually created afterwards, it's mind-boggling. There's 10 times more fire. And you didn't burn down your mom's cottage, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, we were very lucky. So um, when you look back at those summers, I think there was still that one big scene that you wanted to do. And, and how did you decide years later to come together and, and get that one scene done? Well, it was uh, we had been touring for about, you know, 10 or 12 years uh, previous to that before Jeremy Kuhn, producer of the documentary, uh, um, approached us with the idea to do a doc. And throughout those screenings, Eric and I were always uh, kind of in jest and with fans and audience members. We talked about, ha, 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 we'll go back and we'll do the plane scene when, our, when, our, when we're in our 40s. And um, it actually kind of came to a reality when Jeremy, um, you know, pitched us on the idea to do a documentary. I resuscitated the idea, you know, with Eric, and we talked about it, and after some discussion, realized it was uh, a cool kind of cornerstone to the narrative uh, in the documentary, and we embarked on our great journey of doing the last scene, the flying wing scene. And Eric, could you describe that scene for those of us who haven't seen Raiders of the Lost Ark in many, many years? Absolutely. This is the scene where Indy uh, fights a bald, muscular German uh, amid whirling propellers around the f flying wing, this uh, elaborate uh, multi-prop airplane, which explodes at the end of the scene quite spectacularly. And this might give you a clue why it was the one scene that was really out of our reach as kids. You know, where are you going to get an airplane and how are you going to let someone let you blow it up? And might I add, if there are any listeners who have not seen the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, we need your number. We're going to contact you. <laughs> well, I wanted to go back. So um, you decided that you were going to do this this final spectacular scene. But obviously, um, by now, you have uh, adult jobs. You have families. I mean, how did you get your family on board, Eric? You know, I actually was reluctant to, to do this. I, I, uh, I needed some convincing because I didn't want the world to think that all we were capable of doing was remaking Raiders, you know. But, um, you know, Chris and, and actually my wife sort of, Cassie, reminded me that, you know, back when we were kids, we didn't weren't concerned with such things. We just did this for ourselves. None of this attention was supposed to happen. And that seemed the best reason to do it again. I mean, why? Who, who gets the opportunity to go back and do what they have always wanted to do as an adult 
when they are 12, you know, climb on a flying wing sing, direct uh, this spectacular set piece that ends in an explosion. It's so, um, but life is much more challenging. Gone is the endless summer, and it's a matter of squeezing out paid time away from work and squeezing in vacation days to try to accomplish it in a very small amount of time and remotely even. And in the documentary, uh, listeners will be able um, to meet your family, including your son, who had this this great little soundbite to describe um, what he thought about this this, uh, culmination after so many years to follow your dream. Well, let's hear. I think it's amazing that Steven Spielberg needed $20 million to make Raiders of the Lost Ark, and my dad only needed his allowance. And so that was back when you were boys making um, your uh, adaptation. But years later, everything costs a lot more. Can you talk about the process of raising funds to make that spectacular scene possible? Eric and I utilized uh, a very you know, powerful uh, crowdfunding platform called Kickstarter, which has become a common uh, place now uh, for many, many creatives. Uh, and so we successfully managed the campaign. We crossed the finish line. We raised $58,000 and then continued to uh, fundraise uh, after that and accumulated resources, uh, a lot of donated time, a lot of donated energy. Um, a lot of in-kind services were provided, and we rallied and pushed and uh, ended up completing the scene just under $100,000. Wow, and and but you you uh, encountered some challenges, right? When when you tried to get that final scene filmed, um, besides dealing with uh, work commitments, um, there was the uh, environment to worry about as well. Yeah, nothing messed with us like rain. It was uh, we had nine days uh, to shoot it, and uh, we were shooting in June, and. Once again, it, it half the days we were rained out, and it was a great source of stress um, and and uh, compressing our our time frame. Because if the if it wasn't filmed now, I mean this this was it. I'm talking with Eric Zela and Chris from Polis, who um, their documentary about the film that they made when they were boys, Raiders: The Story of the Greatest Fan Film Ever Made. That's going to screen this weekend at Real Artways in Hartford. Um, they're joining us from NPR Studios in Washington D.C. I wanted to go back to what you said earlier about um, there's no such thing as an endless summer anymore. About the difficulty of over seven years when you were boys coming together to film um, these and to remake these scenes. Um, you know, when you look back, are you amazed at how much you accomplished? Yeah. As kids, you know, you don't know that trying to remake uh, this kind of movie on this scale is impossible, or at least, you know, we uh, it certainly felt that way. Um, but, yeah, we, we didn't really realize how, uh, you know, what we were trying to do. As far as we knew, it was we were the only ones in the world um, – seeking to do this comes to find out uh, far from it. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, we, we dove into it just sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as any child would do. We thought we could knock it out in a summer. We had no idea it would take seven summers. And and um, it's kind of like a quagmire situation where you get farther into it. And um, those first couple of shots that that are really good and really exciting and really amazing, you're like, yeah, yeah, we can do this. And then that turned into year three, year four, year five, year six, you know, all, all the while um, surrounded by people asking us, so 
have you guys finished that Raiders thing yet? And <laughs> you, oh, well, this summer, this summer, we're we're almost there. And uh, you know, we had no idea what we were getting into. Yeah, and the biggest uh, question in all our heads were, are we ever going to finish? Um, and that was our greatest aspiration at the time, um, just actually crossing the finish line. And you mentioned um, one summer after another. Um, you're obviously going through puberty at this time. How did your friendships change, um, and how did that impact getting these um, these scenes uh, shot? Well, you know, I, I recruited as many uh, friends from high school as as I could uh, on this. Um, you know, Chris and I, uh, best friends. You know, no better way to test a friendship and. Uh, you know, certainly we, uh, as we entered puberty, went through uh, trials related to that. I had my first uh, high school sweetheart, and uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, we had a falling out over a girl and didn't speak uh, for the rest of the summer. It wasn't until the following that we managed to patch things up and continue. And you also mentioned in the documentary that, you know, life goes on and you, you still have this, uh, this dream uh, to accomplish, but, you know, you're also going through other personal issues in each of your lives, including divorce. I mean, how did this project help you get through that? I think um, Raiders has been very much of a way to escape, you know, that's been a, a really nice uh, vehicle for us to have a project to th- throw ourselves into. Um, you know, things that are, are troubling in life. You know, kids uh, want to do something that's fun. They want to do something that they enjoy. They want to do something where they can kind of forget the the um, the uh, the trials of, of uh, normal life. And I think that's what Raiders was, uh, at least for me. You know, I'll let Eric speak on, on his his sort of take. Yeah, you know, it's been said we, we weren't normal kids <laughs> growing up. <laughs> But uh, and while we certainly didn't have that perspective at the time, I know that uh, I would uh, found great joy in in losing myself in the work or finding myself in, in the work uh, in in inhabiting this world. Um, it was a great uh, it was a great refuge and, and a great sort of bubble that we had uh, whenever we would get together. Uh, in the in the basement, uh, shooting around the, the Gulf Coast, it was uh, it was our thing. It was a unique time. Can you describe how your adaptation um, got a lot of attention and kind of spurred you to come together and um, you know make this documentary and and kind of document the process? Because it was was it kind of a fluke that um, people heard about it years later? Yeah, you know. None of this attention was ever supposed to happen. We had a hometown premiere in 1989 when we finally finished and went on to life, college, jobs, etc. I mean, I'd dust off the videotape occasionally and show it to friends, but that was about it. And it wasn't until, uh, I guess, an old college roommate of mine, uh, thank goodness, made a copy, passed it on to a friend who passed it on to a friend. Six degrees of separation later, a copy falls into the hands of Eli Roth, who's just sold cabin fever. He's taking meetings around Hollywood, including DreamWorks, Spielberg's company, and brings this tape to his own pitch meeting, slides it across the conference room table and says, you really need to see this. And that's how it turns out Spielberg watched it and loved it and wrote us a a very kind letter. And uh, life was never the same after that. And didn't you get a chance to meet Steven Spielberg? Sure did. Yeah, <laughs> a, a few years into uh, the the building attention around our story, and after we had 
engaged in the world premiere at the world-famous Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Austin, Texas. Uh, we started kind of touring and speaking and, and using our film to sort of inspire and educate people and, you know, and kids and, and what have you. And uh, we get a call when we're in Los Angeles, and uh, it was Spielberg's office uh, wanting to kind of meet us for, uh, you know, the next afternoon. And, you know, after some sort of disbelief and and uh, and, and it, disorientation, we, <laughs> we found our way to the Amblin lot uh, the next day and met the man himself. And it was absolutely everything that you would want it to be. It was, uh, he was uh, very paternal. He was very engaged. He gave us some great advice and, and ushered us into his office to show us outtakes of Raiders and Temple of Doom. And we got a picture with him and it was just awesome. You were kids again. Very much so. Yeah, it's it's hard to, you know, you, you have that sort of sweaty palmed moment where, you know, you're like, oh, my God, I'm sitting here talking to Steven Spielberg. I can't believe it. Yeah, it was always uh, uh, it was a pipe dream, not an aspiration that one day Spielberg would see it and 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 like it. And to have that come true. I mean, uh, unbelievable. I mean, this sort of thing doesn't happen in real life. Right. But but it did. Uh, it's really something to meet your boyhood heroes and and discover that you've chosen your hero as well. Um, so obviously I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, has become a, a cult classic. Um, now with this documentary, I imagine you're meeting even more people um, that are just in awe of you uh, fulfilling this childhood dream of, of uh, finishing uh, the adaptation. What are, what are people telling you when they meet you and they, they see what you're able to accomplish? Well, when we're on a national tour now and in continuation of our you know, ongoing touring, and we meet so many kindred spirits around the country, and it's really, really wonderful. And, and one, to have the validation of, of the hardcore indie fans, to have people from all walks of life uh, tell us after screenings that um, our story inspires them and, and prompts them to go out and engage in something that they never thought they can do or gave them the confidence or, or you know, reignited some creative aspirations that they had and and it really inspires them and um you see the flurry of sort of energy that they've been uh that they've been given uh through a viewing of the adaptation it's it's really nice i don't think eric and i ever get tired of that and and those are the things that's the magic that for which we're uh, thankful indeed I wanted to ask you, I was thinking back to the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, and there's that famous uh, scene with the boulder. <laughs> I know um, in the documentary, they kind of uh, take us through the, the process of you guys cre- recreating the boulder scene. Can you share that with us? Yeah, the boulder was uh, became something of a metaphor for being our most difficult prop, a uh, metaphor for the challenge itself, it seems. Back when we were kids, we Chris and I stayed up way past our bedtime in Chris's room building this boulder out of crisscross bamboo stalks, duct tape, and cardboard. And about the time the sun came up, we realized it was too big to get out of the room. Boulder number two was a cable spool covered with cardboard, and that, uh, that looked, well, non-threatening, we'll say. Boulder number three weather balloon, which I ordered at the back of a comic book and uh, was going to cover that with paper mache Came down the next morning, found it, it popped. Boulder number four, uh, chicken wire. Cut my hands uh, uh, shaping this, uh, this frame to cover that with pa- paper mache And unfortunately, a hurricane hit Mississippi that summer, and I still remember watching our poor, sad boulder 
uh, floating out into the water. Have no idea where it is now. Boulder number five was the trick. Um, figured out how to um, do a, a plumb line through some research in the local library. Um, convinced a local uh, fiberglass specialist to allow us to dig a hole in his backyard, drop the plumb line, and sort of scrape the walls of this hole with a spoon uh, to form a perfect hemisphere. Lined the walls with fiberglass, repeated the process, joined the two halves together, and finally, about, oh, five years in at this point, <laughs> we finally have our six-foot-high spherical boulder ready to roll down two 40-foot-long untreated telephone poles in my mom's garage made up to look like a cave. And it was pretty accurate, I have to say, when when you see your adaptation and, and the and the original. Oh, thank you. Five years worth of work, about nine seconds, totally worth it. <laughs> I have to ask before we let you go, um, if you were kids today, what would be the movie you'd want to remake? That's easy. It'd be Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> That's the weird thing. We do get asked that. And as much as we both love movies, um, you know, for... Raiders is remains a unique film for us. In fact, it still seems like a fun idea to remake it, even now, even though we've done it. Um, go figure. I want to thank Eric Zela and Chris Trompolis. Uh, as children, they started remaking Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation. Tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m., Real Artways in Hartford will screen the documentary Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. And filmmaker Eric Zela will do a Q&A after the film. And then at 5.30, the original cult classic adaptation of the film will be screened. Chris and Eric, thank you so much for joining Where We Live. Thank you. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Talarski. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.